Want to use a blue pew Bible? It's on page 845, bottom right-hand corner. Chapter 10 starts. would encourage everyone to follow along, whether with a physical Bible or through a Bible app, if you're digitally inclined, and if you have the resistance to be able to not check the 14 notifications and the 37 emails you'll receive during this sermon, you have more self-discipline than I do, but if you can have at it. But either way, I love when a church has a Bible in hand following along, physical or digital, so you can see it, right? I mean, what I wanted to show you every single week is that um, everything I say is rooted in here. All right, this isn't just my own mind. You should not trust me if I'm just giving you my ideas week in and week out. And I especially want that to be true this morning as we approach a difficult text. And so uh, if you're new to grace or new-ish, we have been walking through the Gospel of Mark verse by verse, chapter by chapter for over seven months now. Uh, Mark is one of the four Gospels, really one of the four portraits or biographies of the life and work of Jesus Christ in the Bible. And we are at the start of Mark 10. Jesus is in the middle of what's often called the discipleship discourse. That's the end of chapter 8, all of chapter 9 and 10. And all these chapters focus around a singular theme of, of what does it look like to be his follower? What's it look like to be a disciple of Jesus? At its base, a disciple is someone who sees Jesus not as just a part of their life, like I got the Jesus part of my life and I have my work and I have my family and I have my hobbies, but rather that we see Jesus as the center of our life. Center, not apart, right? True faith kind of provides this lens through which we see everything in our lives and the world around us. Um, here's the reality. If you uh, were not a believer and then became a believer, uh, nothing in the world changed. But the way that you see the world, the lens through which you see the world is completely transformed. And that's what it is to be a disciple, to be counter-cultural, right? What we know is that the value of a believer runs contrary to what culture values, what culture think is right and good. And it doesn't mean we're enemies with the world around us, right? Like, we're not trying as a church to defeat the world. That's a kind of a wrong mindset that churches can find themselves in. It's not our job to defeat it. In fact, the reason we're counter-cultural is that so we can reach the world with the good news, And so I say that to set up our text this morning because Jesus is going to provide a lens for us. He's going to provide a lens for his followers, his disciples, to view the nature of marriage and divorce. And I can safely say this, that there is no sermon that I've preached that has been prayed over more than this one. Careful, nuance, clarity, unbelievably important, right? For several reasons. Just um, number one, it's heavy. It's a heavy topic this morning. Implications that are massive, very emotional and, and personal to everyone in the room, right? I mean, some, some are going to be impacted more than others, but no one's untouched by this. For those who do have lives that have been fully shaped by a divorce, either personally or those closest to you, even the mention of that word can carry a huge weight of sorrow and loss. And so it's possible maybe you are coming with questions. What does the Bible have to say about these things? What does this church have to say about these things? What does my pastor have to say? And maybe those will be addressed and answered today, hopefully, some of them. But it's also possible, as I'm kind of writing this and just praying for myself, praying for you, is that it's possible you're going to actually leave with questions that you didn't think you had coming in with. 
Like, I didn't have questions, but now I got questions. And I just want to say up front, that's okay. Like, we welcome that here. We try to create a church culture where we want dialogue. We want to be able to wrestle through these topics together with a biblical lens. And especially saying that because I know there's no way I could say everything there is to say about marriage and divorce in a single sermon. And I don't want to try to. Like, we are faithfully rooted in a text this morning. And so my encouragement and maybe my challenge to everyone in the room is stay dialed in until the end. Even if I say something that really just want, makes you just want to explode, let me just encourage you to just stay dialed in to the end that, that this is the word of God. It's beautifully inspired for our good and for our edification. And, and that's why I want it in your hand that this is not a book to fear. This is not a passage to fear. And I want us to see it because this passage points to a truth that is beautiful and joy-producing for all of us if we have the ears to hear it. So let's go. We'll be covering the first 12 verses of Mark 10 this morning, but we'll start with verses 1 through 5. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. All right, so we need to place this whole dialogue in context with the book, right? So we're, you, you know I'm a map guy, you know a map was coming, map up on the screen, where's, this is kind of ancient Israel, kind of where are we at in the life of Jesus' ministry? Um, if, I wish I had a pointer, but Caesarea Philippi, it's in red towards the top, that was Mark 8, where, where Peter was the one who finally said, you are the Christ. From there, they went to Mount Tabor, which is the mountain near Caesarea Philippi for the transfiguration, and then coming off the mountain, they start this trek south. What's interesting about Mark's account is that chapters 1 through 9 all take place in Galilee, which is northern Israel. And now for the first time in chapter 10, they're venturing down into Judea, down towards Jerusalem. It's kind of bottom left to the left of the Dead Sea. Jerusalem being the place where the temple is, Jerusalem being the place where Jesus has already twice told his disciples, listen, I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and be killed and then rise on the third day. But as we get into this region, it's a new region, but same old results, isn't it? As he walks, what happens? Crowds gather. Still A-list celebrity at this point. Everybody wants to be around him. And so um, as the crowds gather, he, he has compassion on them and he teaches. That's always the, the, the kind of rhythm of Jesus. He sees the crowds. He doesn't resent them. He doesn't curse them. He doesn't put them down. He has compassion on them because he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. Right? True compassion for people around you is telling them what is true and right. And it sets up another round of confrontation with the Pharisees. Um, as a reminder, the Pharisees is this kind of leading group of uh, Jews who held high authority amongst especially the lay people of Israel. They were experts in the Old Testament law. They were very devout. 
but they had distorted in many ways the Old Testament law. They have even created new laws and trying to apply them to everyday life to lord over the people. They were legalistic, but again, very strict, very devout, and they were vigorously opposed to Jesus. We found out all the way back in Mark chapter 3 that they were already conspiring to kill him. Like they wanted nothing to do with him. So everything they do, everything they ask has this motive behind it of how can we get rid of him? So whenever they ask a question in the Gospels, it's important to know the motive. The question was simple. Hey Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? I mean, on the surface, you could go, that could be a genuine question, right? We want to pick Jesus' brain. We want to learn from him. We want to engage in honest dialogue. But that's never the motive of the Pharisees in the Gospels. They ask not to engage, but to expose. We know what that's like, right? There's two ways you can ask a question. I really want to have dialogue. I really want to hear an answer. And then there's a way to ask a question that's just really passive-aggressive. It just wants to expose the person we're asking. That's their desire here. Because they are determined to find a way to eliminate him. And this has a dark motive behind it. Do you remember in Mark chapter 6, we read of the execution and the arrest of John the Baptist. Do you remember what John got arrested for? Why did they arrest John? Because he was publicly speaking out against Herod's marriage. Herod was the Roman ruler over Israel at this time. And King Herod split up the marriage between his brother Philip and his wife Herodias so then he could go marry Herodias, right? Awkward family reunions after that for life, I am sure. But John was saying, (laughs) outspoken, listen, that is not right. In fact, the word he uses that Mark shows us in Mark 6 and says, it was unlawful for you to divorce your brother and his wife so then you can go marry his wife. And then while John was in prison, what happened? Herodias wasn't a fan of him, was angry with him, came up with a plan to have him beheaded. Nice little story there tucked back in Mark chapter 6. So Jesus, think about this, is now walking through the very land where John was arrested. They throw out this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Knowing there are crowds present, Jesus is very popular, whatever he says, This response is going to get around, and maybe this will lead to an arrest, and maybe an arrest will lead to another execution. Chief priest, your job is done. Your hands are clean. He's gone. That's the hope. That's the motive behind this question. And Jesus, he knows motives. He always has. He always will. And as was his custom in these situations, he answers this question with a question of his own. Well, Pharisees, experts in the Old Testament law, what does Moses say? Moses is like your king, right? Everything he says, like that's what you're basing everything off of. What's Moses say? Moses, writing the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the authoritative uh, gospel book of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees say, yeah, he does have something to say. They quote Deuteronomy 24. He says, basically, Moses was good with it. He allowed us men to just write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Nice and easy. No fault divorce. Send her off. Moses was good with it. So let's look at 
the passage they're referring to. Deuteronomy is Moses' final words to the nation of Israel as they stand really at the edge of the promised land, about to walk in, had just wandered 40 years in the desert, and Moses, who's about to go on top of the mountain and die, he has some final words. So Deuteronomy's almost set up in a series of sermons for his people, this kind of recap of the law. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if, he find, if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that your Lord God is giving you for an inheritance. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. I wonder what your initial reaction is to seeing that. It might be like, oh, the Pharisees sound like they might be right. That is what it seems like Moses is saying. Maybe you see that and you're like, wait, that's in the Bible? Maybe it's surprising. What do we do with that? That, that, that's, that was hard to hear a little bit of it. That looks like a terrible law. Well, Jesus helps us out because he responds to something that's fascinating. Verse 5, he said, And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. So I want you to stay with me here. This is really, really important. Jesus said, the Lord wrote this into law that Moses faithfully passed along, not because he desires divorce, but because he recognizes the reality of it in a fallen, broken world. Deuteronomy 24 is a concession to divorce, not an intention for divorce. Really important. Concession, not intention. And Jesus says, you know why he wrote this? because of the hardness of human hearts, because of your sin. And so he seeks to regulate it even while not condoning it, and he regulates it. If we were to really break down Deuteronomy 24, we realize the reason that's in there is to protect the woman, to protect the victim, who was always the the victim of divorce in that day. But this passage, misinterpreted, is what shaped Jewish culture by the time of the first century. So they actually had written into their law in the first century that the most prevalent stance towards divorce amongst Jews was in line with what these Pharisees were thinking, and that divorce can be granted and ordained by God for, quote, any indecency. That's how it was written into first century law. A husband could wake up one morning and decide, look at his wife and go, I find something indecent in her. And as long as he went through the process, wrote the certificate of divorce, just send her away. And that, by the way, wasn't a two-way road. The woman did not have that power. Only the man could do it and could be done just like that, clean cut. And this is also in line with what Roman rule was and Roman culture was throughout the empire. So I want you to notice a connection the Jews chose to interpret Scripture in a way that would be in line with the culture around them. Hence, they have no problem with what Herod did because, hey, that's Moses said, certificate of divorce, any indecency. 
So they are totally aligned with the Roman culture around them, and it makes it nice and easy for them. And they know Jesus probably does not agree, so now they want to put him on the spot. It always has been and always will be a temptation for the people of God to just fall in line with their culture's dominant view, especially in an area like marriage and sexuality. So I say that to say this, what we've kind of been seeing now in the world we're in, it's not new. It's recycling what's always been happening. It is flat out easier for the people of God, for churches, for Christians to just fall in line with the dominant cultural view around them. Because to go against it could lead to condemnation. Back in that day, it was arrest and execution. Today, it is condemnation of being accused of bigotry of hatred, it's just easier to not go against the tide of your culture, but it's easier always what's best. Just because something's easy doesn't make it true. So, so we need to ask the question, what is true when it comes to marriage and divorce according to the word of God? That's where we go next. Jesus guides us, verses 6 through 12, follow along. This is Jesus speaking now to the Pharisees. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. Verse 11, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. In preparing for this, preparing, praying over how to best and most clearly present this part of the passage, I I need to be nuanced here. I mean, clarity is vital. And so I have five principles of marriage and divorce. This is not everything there is to say about the topic But hopefully this presents, and I think this passage presents, a faithful foundation to what is good and right in Scripture. So five principles. They'll be on the screen if you want to take notes. Principle number one, marriage was designed by God in creation. Marriage was designed by God in creation. It's interesting where Jesus goes from this. He calls them out, says it's because of your hardness of heart, and then he goes back where? All the way to the beginning. He goes from uh, God's concession of divorce because of sin to now God's intention for marriage and creation. And he quotes Genesis 1 and 2, who was written by who? Moses. All right, so he's like, he's like, you guys know full well what Moses has to say in Deuteronomy about this, but that's not all Moses had to say. He said something way before that. In fact, Moses gives us the origin of marriage, that marriage was designed by God from the beginning of creation. So all the cultures and all the generations and all the kingdoms and empires and countries and cities have, who have now had marriage in place, that is not a man-made institution. It wasn't necessary just for tax laws and estate wills. Marriage was introduced into creation before the fall, before sin ever entered the world, and it was instated as good and right. It's principle number one. Have to start there. Principle number two. 
God's design for marriage is one man and one woman for life. It's often said and argued tracking this conversation not only within the church but outside in the broader world that that Jesus never weighed in on matters of sexuality. That Jesus was silent when it came to same-sex attraction or he never had a stance, clear stance on same-sex marriage. That that's something that was Old Testament law. And then it's something that the Apostle Paul kind of picked up and ran with it for reasons of his own. But Jesus never said anything about it. That's one of the primary thoughts, mentalities that are out there. And this passage, I just want to point to it. I just want to show you, like, this passage shows us that's wrong. The emphasis of this teaching on the duration and nature of marriage includes the who. And he did it in three times. In these short verses, he did it three times. First, in creation, God made them male and female. Second, a man shall leave his father and mother implies he comes from a home where there's a male and a female, father and mother. And then third, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. God's design for marriage in creation was one man and one woman. And if it were not so, if that were not true, if that were not what the Bible claims and not what the church should claim, if marriage was designed as good and right for any two people who just decided that they are in love regardless of gender, even looking just at this passage, if that were true, why wouldn't Jesus just be a little bit more clear with his wording on, his, on this topic? That is so massive. That's going to have so, many in, so much influence and so much implication across every culture and every generation. Now, I need to also say that we could and should talk about how Scripture also speaks how we ought to love people, how we ought to love and serve and be for people, especially people in the LGBT community, and not to discriminate against them and not to persecute them, and that's a message churches need to hear often and maybe even personally, but certainly churches need to repent of where they've failed to do so. But in this passage... Rooted here, it's clear that Jesus affirms God's design for marriage is between one man and one woman. But that's only part of it. That's only part of the design. The second part, just as important, is that marriage is designed for life. Jesus says, What God therefore has joined together, let not man separate. That's a union, right? The language of two becoming one. That popular phrase is supposed to be a word picture that Jesus uses to get across that this design is for life. And again, I think a fair accusation against the church at large is that while it might affirm and speak out about its stance on same-sex marriage, it's dangerously and horrifyingly quiet when it comes to divorce. The design in the creative order is two becoming one as a lifelong union. And in this way, marriage is a covenant. Covenant's a very biblical word. You know what another word for covenant is? A vow. The kind of things that people say to one another at weddings. So this upcoming Saturday, I have the opportunity to marry a, a guy that I played ball with in college and his wife, a girl who also... Uh, played basketball at TCNJ with us. And as part of that ceremony, as we go through the planning and the preparation, the premarital counseling, like every ceremony, what's going to be in the ceremony? Vows. 
It's like the climax of a ceremony, like vows to be true to you in sickness and health, for richer or poorer, for better or worse, until death do us part. That's covenant language, isn't it? That's unbreakable. The opposite of a covenant in this sense would be a contract. A a covenant says, I'm in and I'll always be in, but a contract says, I will do X if you do Y. We are all involved in a lot of different contracts throughout our life, and we know that we owe something if we get a service, or if they give us a service, we owe them something, and vice versa. And if under terms of a contract, if one party stops doing Y, I don't have to do X. I'm free out of that contract. No questions asked. And that's how marriages are often treated, like a contract. But that's not how it was designed. Okay, so at the wedding this weekend, when we get to the part of the vows, let's say you're sitting in the audience watching a wedding. What would you do if you heard this? Okay, Steve and Steph is their names. All right, Steve is standing here and he goes, I, Steve, will love you, Steph, only if you stay exactly the way I want you to. You have to stay under the weight that you're currently at right now. You have to make a certain amount of money to contribute to this marriage. And if you do that, I will love you till death do us part. Okay, Steph's turn. All right, Steph's here. I, Steph, will love you, Steve, and will be with you only if you don't let your bench press go below 225. And you stay active. And you do all the chores around the house that we agree you need to do. And only if by age 50, we own three homes in three different states. Let's say those were their vows. Not covenant language, contract language. How are you responding to that in the crowd? Just, I mean, I'm just going to go on a limb and say there's not too many of you are getting choked up watching this part. <laughs> right? Like, that's so beautiful. No, you know, you'd probably step back and go, I don't, I don't think they're going to make it. I'm <laughs> just going to go grab that wedding gift. I don't think... Contract language, way different than covenant language. But, okay, so in all seriousness, here's the tragedy. Marriages often sound like covenants on the day of the wedding, but then their marriages look more like a contract. Why is marriage covenant language that we all know and we all hear every time we go to a wedding? Why is it important to note that the design is for life? leads to principle number three. The purpose of marriage is to be a picture of the covenant keeping love between Christ and his church. God created marriage knowing that it will serve to be a picture of his great love for his people and knowing that it will be a way to demonstrate the love of Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. So the reason why marriage is designed to be for life is because it represents the ultimate truth that Jesus would never divorce his bride. It's a covenant that is unbreakable. John Piper says this, Marriage among Christians is mainly meant to tell the truth about the gospel, that Christ dies for his church who loves him and never breaks his covenant with his bride. Marriage's purpose is never primarily for the people getting married. It's to glorify God and tell the story of the gospel to the world. This is something we need to get right because this is no, 
no way, even within the church and outside the church, how marriage is seen and thought about. The prevalent, dominant mindset out there is that marriage exists to fulfill us. That we won't be fulfilled until we find that one person in the world out of six billion that God put there just for me. And you, you hear that, you start hearing that, that tone and it makes for really romantic one-liners, but it's me and it's me and it's all about me. And it's horrifically misguided. Listen to me, completion and fulfillment is found in Christ alone, not in marriage. And despite 80% of romantic movies where someone inevitably is standing in the pouring rain talking to somebody else about how their life will not be complete and fulfilled unless they're together, you know what? That makes for great theater and great Hallmark movies and horrible theology. Is there joy to be had in marriage? Absolutely. Is it a gift of God? Absolutely. Outside of Jesus Christ, there's no gift I am more grateful for than my marriage. But our ultimate fulfillment, is that contingent upon being married? No. The cultural, that mindset, that very mindset is what sets up millions of single and men and women who feel like they are less than or feel like they are broken because they're single. Singleness is not brokenness. And the church should be the, at the front lines of the ones declaring that. Because covenant relationships are not only found in marriages. They're also found in churches. A church family. The people of God. It's why we have a membership covenant, right? That's why we word it that way. And why we emphasize membership so strongly. Because that's a place where we vow to one another, rooted in the context of this church, that we will be in a relationship that reflects and glorifies God in a way that makes disciples and the world sees. So if you're single, it's not bad to desire marriage, not at all, but don't buy into the lie that you need to be married in order to be complete and fulfilled. You could be single your entire life and be beautifully fulfilled in every single way. And you could be married for 70 years and never feel like you were fulfilled for a minute of it. Because completion and fulfillment is found in Christ alone. So that's the long and unpacked answer from Jesus to the Pharisees' question. Hey, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus' answer was no. Not according to God's original design and purpose. And then Jesus gets alone with his disciples and they ask about him again. They're like, Jesus, really? Like, what's, what, are you, what, are you, what are you talking about? And he says something even stronger, even harder in some ways to further his teaching. He equates divorce and marrying again to adultery. You're like, what are we going to do with that? And so we could just wrap up the sermon. That's the text. Let's all go home. But, but in light of I know how crucial this is and how vital it is that we are faithful to all of Scripture, I need to add two principles. That's not really adding them in my own words. I'll get to that. But, but two principles just so we can lay all our cards on the table. Principle number four. There are biblical grounds for divorce. So in the parallel passage uh, in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew talks about the same encounter. Matthew includes a phrase when he's talking to his disciple that Mark omits. It's, it's, it's kind of fascinating, and I wish we don't have time to go down. Why wouldn't Mark include this phrase, but he didn't? But our job being faithful to all the Scripture, Matthew says that Jesus says, 
And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Mark chooses to omit that. Matthew includes it. And so our principle number four, God's design, his intention for marriage is one man and one woman for life. But God concedes to the reality of a broken world where divorce happens. And as I see it, Scripture provides two clear grounds for what we would call biblical divorce. One, based on Matthew 19, sexual immorality, where the victim is permitted to seek divorce. And then based on 1 Corinthians 7, Apostle Paul gives grounds for divorce due to a desertion of a spouse. If a man or woman is abandoned despite efforts to reconcile or hold the marriage together, they are permitted to divorce. Now, I personally believe desertion includes abuse. That somebody who is an abuser has deserted their covenant. And so if a spouse is being abused physically or emotionally, habitually, I think it's warranted and biblically permissible for that person to seek divorce. And if anyone comes to me and talks about uh, that they're being abused physically or emotionally, my immediate response will always be to separate. Doesn't mean it has to be divorced, but immediately separate, contact the authorities. There is no room for a church to use a Bible to tell an abuser to stay in their home. So in the cases of sexual morality and desertion, divorce is not required. It's not even necessarily hoped for, but it's permitted. Not the design, but a possible response to the sin of an offending party. And then principle five, which is related where there were biblical grounds for divorce, remarriage is permissible. So uh, if you are aware of the conversation that this has happened on the theological level over the centuries, this is highly debated. Uh, There are faithful men and women who I love, who I've learned deeply from, who love the scriptures, who stand on opposite sides here. In fact, I just quoted John Piper. This is an area where I would depart from him, and I don't say that lightly because that's dangerous, but I don't agree with his stance on this, the stance that... um, Remarriage should never be permissible while the ex-spouse is still living in hopes of reconciliation. Obviously can't get into the exegetical details here, but that exception clause in Matthew 19, except for, I think that applies both to divorce and to remarriage, not just divorce. But we can talk about that, willing to discuss that. My stance would be that once a biblical divorce is finalized, I believe they are free to remarry. Okay, so there are five principles. It doesn't say everything about, there is to say. Hopefully, that was faithful to the text. Hopefully, there's a biblical foundation for how we should view marriage, divorce, and remarriage. But here's how I want to finish. As a church who interprets scriptures faithfully, our role is to be both preventative and reactionary in a way that honors God. So preventative, I want to teach faithfully what scriptures teaches about it, right? We, and, and that's just not pastor, that's not just leadership team, that's a church, members of a body who want to be faithful to what scripture teaches about it. We want to educate and we want to exhort and we want to point to the word and we want to even warn where warning is needed and do that faithfully, courageously. But we also need to be reactionary in a way that has compassion and come alongside people who have experienced the pain of divorce, 
who are living through the impact that lasts not just months, but years and decades. And yes, we're all broken in a sense, and there's a lot of brokenness in the world, but talking to people, sitting and, and hearing from people that the pain of divorce goes so deep. It's such a shaping force that doesn't just go away in time, that we as a church need to come alongside in a way that is gospel-centered, and that is based on the grace and mercy of our Lord. So, First, let me just talk to the married couples. Some of you may be in here, and maybe others know in all likelihood they don't, but your marriage is in a tough spot right now. It's a a rough patch. You're not connecting like you once did for any number of reasons, and, and there's a need to reconnect. To be honest and transparent that, that something is misfiring right now and together to renew a covenant that you made together. Because for every married couple, you took those first vows. And every marriage, most times, the love you have for one another will sustain those vows. But there are times, and if you have not had them yet, there will be times, listen to me, where the vows you took will need to sustain the love. And it can. And it will. Because the love isn't just like, man, it's like the wind and it was here and it's gone and now I lost it. It's rooted in covenant. The Bible says love is rooted in covenant and a covenant that you took and God will use it as a means of grace to point to the unconditional love of Jesus Christ and fulfill and maintain your marriage. And it's not over. It doesn't have to keep going down this path. It's not too far gone. You gotta be honest first. And then you gotta fight for it. Like really fight for it. And it's worth it. Oh my goodness, is it worth it to allow your faith in Christ and the covenant he made with you to spill over into your faith in your marriage. And for other married couples, maybe it's not just a rough patch. It's habitual. Maybe it's been this way for years, and, and if you're honest, it feels more like a partnership than it does a marriage, and you just see divorce coming closer and closer on the horizon. Maybe the same argument or the same issue just is popping up over and over again. So not only is there that same desire to fight, need to be there to renew covenant, but would also encourage you towards professional biblical counseling. It's not weak to pursue counseling. It's sometimes and many times the strongest thing you could do because God has equipped counselors to be a means of grace in your marriage. So talk to me, email me. I would love to share with you some people that I've pointed to in this area. Let me come alongside you and and pray with you and point you in their direction. I want our church to be on the front lines of being used by God to faithfully prevent marriages that end pointing to, warning about the dangers of walking in the source of power that is within us. And then for those in here who maybe it, it, that's long gone, you're, you're divorced, maybe you've been divorced, maybe it was biblically warranted, and maybe it wasn't, maybe you were the victim, maybe you weren't, Maybe you were a child, a divorce, that feel like you've fallen through the cracks in all of this. I want to be clear. You don't need to sit under constant guilt and shame. Where brokenness runs deep, God's grace is deeper still. 
And I know this brokenness runs through families and finances and physical pain that can last years and decades, but grace is flowing this morning. Rest in that grace. Lean into the cross. And yes, if there's a place where you know you need to repent in this area, repent with full confidence that you have a Savior who has already paid for that. And there's no need for repentance. Just trust in his promises. And I know that's a daily battle that needs to happen day after day. But you know what's good news? His mercy is new every morning. And there's no room for ongoing guilt and shame. You don't have to live under that. I want to invite the worship team up now. And the last final point for this morning, that's for all of us. So whether you're single, whether you're divorced, whether you're married, whether you're a child of a healthy marriage or a child of divorce, here's something for all of us. Here's the beautiful truth that this whole passage points us to. The reason why it's here is to see the purpose behind God's design for marriage. Marriage is never an end in itself. It points to the fact that you have a Christ who came and paid it all. You have a Christ who went to the cross and made a covenant to those who put their faith in him, and he will hold you fast, and he's not going anywhere, and there will be no end. Listen, marriage is temporary, but our union with Christ is permanent, and that goes on for eternity. 10,000 years from now, nobody in this room will be married. But for those who place your faith in him, we will be caught up in an eternal life, eternity-long covenant that is beautifully gracious and points us to a Christ who held us fast. And I want that to run through our veins this morning. Let that overflow and then give you the courage to apply whatever you need to apply this morning. So this song, it's going to serve as our, it's going to serve as our closing prayer. He will hold me fast. Let it wash over you this morning. Let this be where our focus lies, that we are all walking out these doors with our eyes fixed on Christ. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold, he must hold me fast. He will hold me fast, he will hold me fast, for my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast, precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast, he'll not let my soul be lost, his promises shall last, bought by him at such a cost, 
He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. Please stand and join us. For my life he bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life. He will hold me fast. Till our faith is turned to sight. When he comes at last, he will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. He will hold. 